Hey everyone, Brittany Mangelson here. In the book that we're about to discuss, uh, there is an entire chapter dedicated to the feminine divine. And we started to discuss it in the context of the podcast, but we decided that it was an important enough topic that it deserved its own podcast. Especially since in Salt Lake, we just had a women's retreat that was dedicated to the topic. But for now, I will read a quote from the chapter in Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time to give you a little teaser. In the beginning was Sophia, and Sophia was with God, and Sophia was God. She was, in the beginning, with God. All things came into being through her. And without her, not one thing came into being that has come into being. It was her life, and it was the light of all people. She was in the world, and the world came into being through her, yet the world did not know her. And Sophia became flesh and dwelt among us. Project Zion Podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts that the Restoration offers for today's world. We aim to feature a wide variety of guests and panelists with roots in the Restoration tradition from Community of Christ and our friends in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music has been provided by Mark Abernathy. You can find his music at www.mark-abernathy.com. Welcome to another episode of Project Zion Podcast. This is your host, Josh Mangelson. Uh, what we do in our local congregation in Salt Lake is we have a book club, and it's hosted by Monica English. And we decided for some of these extra shot episodes, we would be having a discussion apart from the actual book club to rediscuss some of the books that we found pertinent to this project and the Latter-day Seekers team. So, with me tonight are a few of the people from the book club, namely Monica English. Hello. My wife, Brittany Mangelson. Hi. And Laura Pennock. Hello. So, the second book that we read in July was a book by Marcus Borg titled Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. And so, with a lot of us in the Salt Lake congregation going through our own faith transition and leaning towards progressive Christianity, this second book really spoke to us because Marcus Borg paints a different picture from the Jesus that we grew up with. In the first chapter, Marcus Borg talks about his own faith journey and how his views of Jesus changed throughout his life. Uh, to begin this discussion, why don't we have Brittany and Monica talk about what piqued their interest in this book amidst their own faith journey. So during my faith transition, um, I realized that I needed to address the topic of Jesus eventually. Um, I had, I kind of put it, put it in the background, but I was starting to see it bubble up on the horizon. And I had realized, um, that the framework that I had been taught growing up just didn't really work for me anymore. I had a really hard time with this, um, male vengeful God that required this blood sacrifice of one of his children, um, to atone for the sins of the world. I just, it didn't, it didn't make much sense to me. And I thought that there would probably be a better way. 
Um, and I also didn't know if I believed that Jesus was the only way, and that kind of tied back to the cross and um, this idea that you needed to believe the right things or you needed to believe in the right Jesus in order to be saved. It just it wasn't working for me anymore. And so I um, asked our pastor, Robin Linkhart, if there was any direction that she could point me to, and she um, had said that she had kind of had to face that same question in her faith journey. So she told me about this book and it it was able to give me a different framework and a different lens of how to see Jesus and the atonement and the concept of sin and the concept of being saved. And through, um, this, I don't know, gateway book into Marcus Borg, uh, it's, it's just completely transformed my theology and it's really helped me, helped me save my faith. So I recommended it to Monica when she started vocalizing some of these same concerns, and here we are. So one of the things that I really appreciated about this book right from the get-go is that it was written by someone who had been through their own faith transition, just as Brittany, you were talking about, and I had also gone through a period of, of deconstruction and was also watching my idea of Jesus be completely deconstructed. Marcus Borg went through a period himself where he lost faith in God and considered himself an agnostic and had to completely reconstruct his idea of Jesus Christ and what it means to have a relationship with God and what the stories of Jesus from the New Testament offer to us as people and as Christians nowadays. Yeah, thanks. Monica, you just brought up having a relationship versus just a belief, and this is as good a time as any to bring that up. And Laura, I think you have a quote that you wanted to share about that. Okay, this quote is found on page 39 of the book, so if you get this book, which you really should get this book, because you're going to want your own personal copy, because you're going to mark it up all over the place. And he talks about um, it shifts the focus of the Christian life from believing in Jesus or believing in God to being in relationship to the same spirit that Jesus knew. So instead of believing in something, some sort of external thing, is we want to take this into ourselves and strive for the same relationship with the divine that Jesus had. And that's what... I think that Jesus was trying to to try to get us, and it's something that that Marcus Borg talks about throughout this book. And I just I really found that very compelling. Monica, do you have anything to add to that? Jesus was leading people into having their own personal relationship with God, um, and so rather than having a relationship with somebody and trusting someone who has a relationship with God to give you an idea of how you should act and what you should do. Um, If you create that divine relationship for yourself, and if you are able to have a relationship with God, then your conscience and the spirit guide you in, in the way of reaching out and creating community. And um, as Jesus did. Yeah. And so in the book, Marcus Borg brings uh, this up and says that this movement from belief to a relationship is going, is like going from a secondhand religious experience to a firsthand religious experience. But the question must arise, 
who is this Christ that we're supposed to be in relationship with? So that brings us to what Marcus Borg addresses. How do we peel back the layers to get back to what the actual mission and vision of Jesus Christ was? So in the book, Marcus Borg paints a picture of a Jesus that's fairly different from the way that Orthodox Christianity has seen him for hundreds of years. And so what he addresses is how he got to this alternative, more progressive view of who Christ was, is taking into account the last 200 years of biblical scholarship and uh, what they have done to their best uh, efforts through different source criticisms and uh, the way they look at things is trying to get an idea of who Jesus would, would have been, and they call that the pre-Easter Jesus. What would Jesus, the historical figure, actually have been like versus the post-Easter Jesus? What are the stories of the early communities telling about him, and what is the faith that they're creating from him? And then apart from it coming into the 21st century, is how do people view Jesus now? Most people view Jesus now as one who came as the Son of God and clearly knew his role as the Son of God to die for the sins of the world. So with the post-Easter Jesus view, we have to take into account that the actual Gospels, beginning with Mark, and then you have Matthew and Luke written later, they're all written 35 to 65, 70 years after Jesus had died. And Within that time frame, it was just an oral tradition, and by the time it was written down, it had changed from the actual language it was presented in to people that were literate, that knew how to read and write, and a lot of things had changed by the time they had written it down, and they were writing down what they best could consider the faith that they saw stemming from Jesus. Brittany, it looks like you have a comment. I think that this is important because in the world of Christianity, um, there's a lot of debate over biblical literalism and historicity and what does it look like to be a Christian and who can claim the title as Christian and who believes in the Trinity the right way or in God the right way or the LDS Godhead or modalism and, and all these different ways to look at God and Christianity. When you really start peeling back um, where these ideas came from, um, a lot of them were based on this post-Easter Jesus, um, and they were, you know, later developments. And so when you look at, you know, what the core is of Christianity and what Christ's message is, you have to take the pre-Easter Jesus at face value for what it is. And in my opinion, you kind of have to leave it there. Monica? Just to be really clear... What we mean by pre-Easter Jesus and post-Easter Jesus, the pre-Easter Jesus is the acts of the person of Jesus himself. The post-Easter Jesus is where the Christian tradition took their ideas of Jesus after he was gone. And so the post-Easter Jesus is, is the development of these ideas around Jesus that may or may not have been things that Jesus himself thought about himself. Do you have anything to add to that, Laura? The Jesus we generally inherit from organized religion pretty much came into being in the the Middle Ages. 
the monks and people who were doing the writing and doing the thinking and trying to figure out, trying to create not so much even a church as a political system. After Rome collapsed, there was this power vacuum that sort of settled in, um, in the church sort of, sort of took it upon itself and emerged as kind of the, the new, the sort of the replacement for Rome. So the Jesus that we inherit as Christianity today came a lot out of, out of that, out of the collapse of Rome, the rise of the, the Catholic Church as a political, not just a religious institution, but as a political institution. And then from there, spread through Europe as both political and religious institution. So that's kind of where the things have kind of come together from is the, the thinking and the um, theology that they were doing at um, during those years and, and even beyond. I grew up with the idea that, um, that that's laid out in the Articles of Faith, that uh, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, Yada, yada. Um, but the problem is Jesus didn't set up an organization. There was no organization. What Jesus offered to us and what we should be trying to get back to is relationship over law, is radical inclusion, is putting ourselves at risk to reach out to those who are marginalized um, with less regard for how it affects our social status than what the need of that particular person is. Monica, you bring up some very good points, and I think this is a good time to transition into what the historical Jesus would have been doing. Uh, In chapter 4, Marcus Borg talks about how Jesus is a subversive sage a person that brings subversive and an alternative wisdom to what everybody else is doing. So the alternative and subversive wisdom of Jesus would clash with conventional wisdom that everybody had. And the conventional wisdom from the framework of Judaism, which he lived in, that was his tradition, would have him clash with the idea of purity, the system of purity that you need to go through all these things to remain pure. But more than that, for us in our day and age, what we should be thinking of, of conventional wisdom is doing the right things or believing the right things. And so the subversive and alternative wisdom of Jesus is that we put that aside and we bring about what uh, his actual vision was, and that was offering peace through compassion. So the wisdom of his day as another author, John Dominique Crossan, that Marcus Borg worked with quite a bit, has brought up is uh, the Roman Empire had the view or vision for peace as being one where you would bring peace through victory, and that's military victory. If there's an unrest within the people, you stop that unrest. And the alternative wisdom is you, what the word compassion means. You stand with somebody in their suffering and you offer justice, not victory over those people. 
This would make Jesus an eschatological prophet because he wanted to see this vision as being a new way of doing things versus the old way. I think this is a really good point where it brings in one of the next concepts is mercy versus compassion. Because when you're offering someone mercy, you're doing that as a superior to an inferior. You can offer someone mercy, which is like, okay, I will have mercy on you and forgive you this, uh, forgive you a debt that you, that, that you owe me. But if you have compassion for a person, you are there as an equal taking their pain and their burden essentially on yourself. And you don't, you're not offering them sort of, I'll give you this because you, because, because I have it to give you. You're there with them and you are, you can't maybe alleviate their suffering or you can't do anything necessarily for them except just be in, be present with them. And, um, that's what, that's what Jesus did with, with people too in creating, breaking down the barriers of insiders and outsiders is he was, he was with people who were the outsiders, who were unclean, who were impure, who were the people who were not acceptable within the, um, the purity laws and conventions of his world. And he was, he was with them and not just because, Oh, I'm just going to be a nice person to you here for a minute. He lived with them. He ate with them. He, and he eating, eating with a person, um, in the Jewish tradition was a very, very important thing too. You became to, to eat, to sit down and, and share food with someone was, was something that's much more intimate than it is today. And it, and it had a lot of implications beyond just feeding each other. It was, it was an acknowledgement of equality among people. If you ate with someone, if you broke bread with them or had dinner with them, shared a table with them, you, that you were saying that we are equals because only equals who would eat together around a table. And he, he did these things publicly. I mean, we know that he spoke to women when women were not allowed to speak in public. Um, it was a punishable act. And so for him to openly defy that and address a woman shows that he was not, he wasn't being shy about it. Um, he was blatantly telling people that how they were marginalizing people was wrong and he wasn't afraid to call people out on it. One thing that um, our pastor Robin says that I love is that Jesus moved right into the neighborhood. There, There is a real difference between the idea of that, um, that all-powerful God who never experiences vulnerability, but Jesus was in full vulnerability um, in a body that could bleed, sweat, could be harmed. Uh, and even so, in the midst of that vulnerability, he placed himself in, in places of danger to emphasize and to show and to live out and to enact the, the importance of um, community and the importance of reaching out to one another. Um, and caring for one another. Thanks for your comments. 
That makes me think about a conversation that we had before recording this as to what cost it would have been for Jesus eating with sinners. And Laura mentioned a book that she had read. Would you mind commenting on that? I read a novel a long time ago that really kind of struck me as how this sort of thing happens. And I think it really happens a lot of times that we, in ways that we don't recognize, but there were these, this class of people. If you were convicted of a crime, for instance, you became what was called a ghost. And in this society, you could not acknowledge people who were ghosts. Um, they, in order to speak to them, to interact with them, to, um, to eat with them, to whatever, um, would create, would mean that you became a ghost and thus you were in that class of people. And so it was kind of this contagious sort of thing. And this person could stand right in front of you and you could not look at them. You couldn't speak to them, even if they were a family member or, or a loved one. You couldn't interact with them without becoming one of them. And it really, that sort of thing creates, um, insiders and outsiders. And insiders cannot interact with outsiders without becoming an outsider. And outsiders, of course, have no way into the insiders. And Jesus broke down all of those, all of those categories that created insiders and outsiders. And he scandalized the people of his time, his, his society. He was, he was an outrageous person. Thanks for your comment. I can definitely see the connection. Uh, Monica, do you have something to add to that? What Jesus did is he broke down the walls and the laws uh, and reached out to people and individuals um, and saw each person as of worth, no matter where they were on the purity scales. And I don't think we understand nowadays how much of a cost there was to what he did. It was not, this isn't like taking a loaf of bread to somebody who is hungry. That is a good and a kind act and something Jesus probably would have done. But the idea went even further because what Jesus did is he reached out to people who were considered unclean, which also made him unclean and an outcast. So in reaching out to a leper or to a woman with an issue of blood, um, just by touching or interacting with those people, he himself became a social outcast within the purity laws. Um, so there had been such an effort to separate people into clean, unclean, pure, unpure, righteous, unrighteous, that it dominated the Jewish culture of that time. What Jesus did is basically stepped over all of those boundaries and all of those walls uh, and said, this person with an issue of blood is worth more than the law that says that I should not touch her. Um, said, this person who is a tax collector and is considered unclean and unrighteous is worth more than the law that says I should not associate with him. And it did come at a cost to him. These were not acts that had no consequence for him. The consequence was that after he touched the woman with the issue of blood, he was considered unclean uh, at least for the rest of the day. 
which meant that the the religious people, the people who considered themselves righteous, the people who considered themselves followers of God, would not be able to touch him, be around him, interact with him for the rest of that day. Well, and I think that um, when we're talking about the lepers or women or other marginalized people that Jesus is going to, they were legitimately seen as sinners. Um, your leprosy was a curse. Being a woman was a curse. Um, and Jesus was showing that not only should we not look at it that way because we should, we should, you know, minister to them, but like has been mentioned that it's okay for us to, to take that upon ourselves. Um, so he really flips it on its head and, uh, and, and it's a bigger deal than just sitting with the kid who nobody is sitting by at lunch. Um, it really is showing that, that this whole clean, unclean culture that is, you know, that was so prevalent in Jewish culture is just unnecessary. And I think that, um, in order for us to, you know, really internalize this in a modern day sense, um, you know, you see it all the time on Facebook or just stupid stuff in conversations or, you know, at, at church gatherings, if someone says something that is, you know, dissent or if they're doubting or if they're struggling or if they're sinning, you know, in whatever way, it's our human nature just to, to turn away from them and to marginalize them and to cut them off. Um, so their doubts or their sins don't affect you. Um, when in reality, Jesus was jumping right in the middle of the chaos, essentially. Um, and, and that's where he was meeting people in the brokenness, in the doubts, in the sin. And that's where we need to be as well, if we're truly going to follow Jesus. And I think in terms of bringing in the restoration, if we're going to get back to living the way that Jesus lived, I think the restoration does offer some very beautiful ways of looking at that within the framework of where it began, where there's a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants that says, For behold, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God, to where a community of Christ has taken it with one of their enduring principles of the worth of all persons, is that we view everybody, no matter where they're at in life, as being children of God that have equal and inestimable worth with God. That what we should be doing is if there is anybody marginalized or viewed by society as less than, that we should be doing things that would restore their dignity and restore them on equal grounds with everybody else. Well, to wrap up, I'd like to thank everybody for their wonderful comments. Um, I'd just like everybody to express how this book has affected their views of Jesus in any way. How about we start with Laura? One of the things that I took away from this book was the idea of Jesus as a spirit person, as somebody whose sort of filters were a little a little looser than, than most of us and, and gave me a model of, um, how to connect, how to be in relationship with the divine and how to, how to sort of view that because, um, I've always approached God through sort of through the filter of the doctrine of the LDS church and, and through the, the idea that the priesthood is sort of this, is sort of this, this pipeline that for me as a woman was an indirect pipeline that I would get that 
through the medium of whatever man or men were sort of in my life and were authorized to do that. But um, it's really expanded for me the idea that uh, that I and I always felt like I had a direct relationship with God, but it's more it really opened up for me a way of seeing myself as being able to be a spirit person to the extent that it's possible for me to, to sort of open the filters that, that I have and to view God in a different way and to view Jesus even as a real living human being who had these extraordinary religious experiences and, and, set this this example, just set an example for how I am to view and to interact with other people. And um, that really opened up a lot of things for me. I, I give money to the homeless people on the street corner now and because I just feel like that it's it's not right to, to just not see them, to, to deliberately not see them. You know, if you see them and if they ask you, then, then really... If I have cash in my pocket, you know, if I have a few dollars, Jesus would have me give that to them. And and it doesn't matter what that person that I give the money to does with the money because it's not really about me and that person. It's about me and God and about that person and God. And I'm just giving of my sustenance or the, in, in a way that, that God has sustained me throughout my life. How about you, Monica? How has this book shaped well, your views about Jesus in any way? I used to think of Jesus as a kind person who was honest and did good things and um, atoned for our sins and went straight to the to the cross with the intention of atoning for our sins. The way I see him now is more of a political activist, somebody who was radically inclusive, someone who broke down barriers to reach out to the marginalized, who saw the worth of every single person he came across, and who saw the importance of relationship over law. How about you, Brittany? How has this book shaped or changed your views of Jesus? Um, well, as mentioned, I started out with a very um, traditional view of, you know, atonement and this, this sacrifice that we all needed to be saved from our sin. Um, and I, this book was pretty theologically transforming for me. Um, I'd say that I'm pretty universalist in my theology um, in that I don't necessarily think that that Jesus requires a specific belief or that God requires a specific belief and that the purpose of Jesus's life was to sacrifice himself for our sins. Um, I almost see it in a way now of, of God saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I can't stop all of this horrible hardship that is happening. And so I'm going to, to move into the neighborhood and I'm going to walk this with you. And I'm going to meet you where you're at. Um, even when society is casting you out. Um, and that, that he truly did turn the kingdom upside down, um, and all the religious laws and the dogma. And, you know, he, he made people really uncomfortable. He made the religious people very uncomfortable because they had a, a list of do's and don'ts and, uh, worthy and unworthy. And so for me in my own life, 
coming from, you know, a background that, that made me feel like I could never catch up to the atonement. No matter what I did, there was still more that had to be repaid because I, you know, always had bad thoughts or I coveted my neighbor's car or whatever, you know, all these little dings that were against me. Um, and I almost felt like I was contributing to the suffering of this man that died 2000 years ago. Um, but I don't see it that way anymore. And I, I truly see it as this, this offering of God essentially saying, I get it. And this sometimes stinks and I'm going to walk with you and be with you through this and we're going to make it out together and it's going to be okay. With myself, I view it, um, a lot like Brittany just to describe Jesus. If we take him as the model, the image of God, what he did for us, because part of the problem when you come to discussing suffering, why is there suffering in the world? There's a lot of needless suffering in the world. We, we can get into arguments about theodicy, but I don't think any of the arguments answers the actual problem of suffering that we deal with in this changing mortal world where things are dying and being reborn. And Jesus as the model of God coming into the neighborhood that God would not take away our suffering, but that God would come and suffer with us and show us there's a better way to do things. And it may not be the broad way within the conventional wisdom that everybody else is doing things, but that there's just a better way of going about life. And we know through the pre-Easter Jesus that Jesus was a pacifist that showed the Roman Empire, just the empires in general, that there was a better way. To wrap it up, we have one last quote from the book that Monica is going to read. Believing in Jesus does not mean believing doctrines about him. Rather, it means to give one's heart, one's self at its deepest level to the post-Easter Jesus who is the living Lord. The sight of God turned toward us, the face of God, the Lord who is also the Spirit. For ultimately, Jesus is not simply a figure of the past, but a figure of the present, meeting that Jesus, the living Jesus who comes to us even now, will be like meeting Jesus again for the first time. With his chariot of fire, we'll sing and we'll shout with the podcast is sponsored by the Latter-day Seekers team from Community of Christ. The views expressed in this podcast are the opinions of those speaking and do not necessarily represent the views, beliefs, or official stance of Community of Christ or the Latter-day Seekers team. I'm so lost. What's going on over there? <laughs>